Welcome to this Uvula audio broadcast of Department of Danger by Jack Lancer. I'm your narrator, Jim Campanella. Jack Lancer is the pen name of Jim Lawrence, master of the spy novel. Jim Lawrence, if you may not remember, authored the James Bond comic strips from 1966 to 1984. With permission from the Ian Fleming Trust, he and artist Yaroslav Horok wrote and illustrated 20 original James Bond comic strips for the Daily Express. After 1977, it became a syndicated strip read throughout Europe and England. Lawrence has written more 007 stories than any other Bond author, even Ian Fleming. In other words, when it comes to spies, Lawrence knows his stuff. Department of Danger is a 1967 YA novel and sequel to Mission Moonfire. Again, to remind you, these stories are about Christopher Cool, teen operative for the CIA. Chris and his partner, Geronimo Jones, are college students who have been trained as secret agents. These stories predated many, which eventually fell into this teen spy genre. You send these 19- and 20-year-olds on spy missions where they would never be suspected, like Cody Banks or Alex Ryder or even Eggsy from the Kingsman movie. This new novel concerns a challenging assignment for Chris, which takes him to London on a dual mission to search for information about his father, who is being held captive behind the Iron Curtain, and to intercept a formula devised by an Asian scientist which threatens the world with a monstrous plague. And now, Department of Danger. Chapter 1. Postmarked, London. Chris Cool sat relaxed at the wheel, as his black jaguar glided over the tree-shaded road on his way back to campus. The sun was warm, the birds were twittering, and Chris felt at peace with the world after his late breakfast with retired professor Calvin Winnie. Quite a charming old character, Chris thought. In his rearview mirror, the blonde college sophomore saw a car zoom out of a dirt lane which he had just passed. It came up behind him with a roar. Easy, pal, the road's all yours, Chris muttered. He pulled aside slightly to let the green hardtop pass. Bang! There was a report like a pistol shot as the hardtop whizzed by. Chris felt the steering wheel jerk in his hands, and the Jaguar's front end slew to the left. A blowout! He braked gently, then straightened out and steered to a limping halt onto the shoulder of the road. Up ahead, Chris saw the other car stop. Its driver emerged as Chris climbed out. Don't tell me he's actually going to offer to help, Chris thought. A nice show of courtesy, but rather surprising from a hot rodder with such a heavy foot. The beak-nosed man was tall and thin. Chris waved a greeting and crouched down to examine his left front tire. Wow. The tire was not just flat, its white sidewall was badly ripped, with frayed cord ends showing through the gashes. 
but Chris had no time to puzzle over the damage. Something hard was pressing against the back of his head, and it felt disturbingly like the cold metal of a gun muzzle. You guessed it, bud, the man said, reading his thoughts. It's just what it feels like, and it goes bang real easy. What's your name? Chris Cool. All right, college boy, just follow orders and you won't get hurt. First, get your hands in the air and stand up. Chris's arms rose obediently as he straightened from his crouch, but halfway up his left hand stiffened and swung around with blinding speed. The blow caught the gunman's arm with a paralyzing compression. With an angry grunt, the thug tottered backwards off balance, but managed to retain his grip on his weapon. He tried frantically to aim it again. Chris's right hand had already plucked a silver pen-like device from his blazer pocket. He pressed the clip and heard a gentle sigh as the man fell to the pavement. I should have known you weren't the helpful type, Chris murmured, looking down at him. The tiny barb of anesthetic would keep the thug quiet and peaceful for the next several hours. Chris replaced the anesthetic pen in his pocket and glanced in both directions. No other cars were in sight on the quiet rural road. He dragged the thug over to the shoulder, among some bushes, and then frisked him quickly and efficiently. The driver's license in the man's wallet showed his name to be Paul Schenko. Chris put it back, and a moment later gave a whistle as he pulled a photo from a pocket of the man's suit coat. It was a photo of Chris Cool himself. The picture looked as if it might have been enlarged from a telephoto snapshot. Evidently, it had been taken while Chris was walking across the campus of Kingston University, since the bell tower showed clearly in the background. Tucking the picture away in his blazer, Chris walked down the road to examine the hardtop. On the front seat, he found a new-looking scientific textbook entitled The Behavior of Insects. Chris leafed through it briefly, glancing at the illustrations. This seems like odd reading matter, he muttered. There was nothing of interest in the glove compartment, but as he checked over the car, the right rear wheel cover caught his attention. A small jet nozzle protruded from the hub. Chris got a tool from the trunk and pried off the cover. Inside was a curious apparatus which included a capsule of compressed air and a plastic reservoir, still half full of tiny, sharp, glittering particles. So that's how he blew out my tire. A jet blast of powdered glass as he went by. Well, that's quite a cute little gimmick. The device certainly had not been rigged by any ordinary criminal. Chris's face wore a worried frown as he returned to his Jaguar. Was the roadside attack connected with his secret intelligence work? Both Chris Cool and his Apache Indian roommate, Geronimo Johnson, had been recruited into the top-secret educational espionage network, TEEN, which was an undercover arm of the CIA composed of brilliant young college students. Now it looked as if Chris's cover might have been blown. If so, his usefulness as a CIA agent would be ended, and perhaps Geronimo's as well. Chris slid behind the wheel of the Jaguar, plucked the radio telephone from its hook under the dashboard, and dialed the operational channel. 
The voice of teen control answered. Q here. Kingston 1 reporting, sir. Chris tersely related what had happened. There was a long silence punctuated by the sound of heavy breathing. Chris could picture Q reaching for a glass of milk to soothe this latest irritation to his gnawing ulcer. Not good, my boy. Not good at all, Q said finally. Leave the chap there and I'll have him picked up. Understood. Chris changed tires and continued on toward Kingston. When the agent entered his dormitory room, he found Geronimo propped in a chair by the window, his nose deep in a political science text. The Native American looked up impassively. You just missed a phone call, Chunde. Long distance. Who was it? Chris asked. Don't know. I said you'd call back as soon as you got in. Asked for operator 217. Chris picked up the telephone and dialed. Presently, the connection was made and his caller's voice came on. This is Nelson Hare. I'm the personnel officer at the Atomic Research Institute, where your father had his laboratory? Oh, yes, sir. Chris's voice faltered slightly. Dr. Jonathan Cool had been one of America's top atomic physicists. Three years ago, he had disappeared during a scientific conference in Europe. It was suspected he'd been kidnapped by enemy agents. Father and son had been extremely close ever since the death of Chris's mother during his boyhood. The youth had vowed to find him, and this was one of Chris's main reasons for becoming an agent. Something rather odd has come up, Hare went on. We've received a letter for you, Chris, addressed in care of your father here at the Institute. What? Chris was startled. Surely no friend or relative was still unaware of Dr. Cool's disappearance. Or could it be that the letter came from someone involved in the mystery? Does the envelope show any return address, sir? None, but it's postmarked London. Hare hesitated before saying tactfully, If the letter should uh, contain any clue to your father's fate, we trust you'll inform the FBI. Definitely. Well, good. Shall I forward the letter to you by special delivery? No. Hold on to it, please. I'll drive there this afternoon and pick it up in person. Chris hung up and told Geronimo the news. Want to come along, Redskin? he asked. Sure. Nothing important scheduled this afternoon. In five minutes, the boys are on their way. As the Jaguars sped north along the Garden State Parkway, Chris related the roadside attack by the thug. That makes two surprises you've had today, Chunde. So it does, Chris said thoughtfully. Was their occurrence one after the other a mere coincidence, or were they connected somehow? As the boys talked, their conversations soon switched to the Apache language. Chris, a gifted linguist, spoke the Indian tongue fluently, and more than once it had proved a useful oral code, uncrackable by enemy eavesdroppers. They turned east to cross the George Washington Bridge and rolled on through New York and Connecticut into Massachusetts. The Atomic Research Institute was located on the outskirts of Boston, among the numerous think tanks along Route 128. It was past 4.30 when they arrived at the sprawling white concrete building with its domed reactor. Chris gave his name to the reception clerk, and presently the boys were taken to the personnel department. Chris noticed two security guards standing at the door. 
Nelson Hare's secretary, an attractive brunette, gave the boys an odd glance before ushering them into her boss's office. Hare rose from his desk as they entered. He was a stocky man with horn-rimmed glasses, new to the Institute since Dr. Cool's disappearance. Chris said, I'm Christopher Cool, sir. I've come for that letter addressed in care of my father. This is my roommate, Geronimo Johnson. Indeed. Hare's face was stony as he pressed a button on his desk. The two security guards came hurrying into the glass-partitioned office. Each gripped one of the boys by the arm. You're both being placed under arrest, Hare said, and I suggest you create no disturbances. Chapter 2 The Shack on the Cliff Chris and Geronimo could easily have sent the guards flying, but the agents were more surprised than angry. Chris said, Maybe you'd better tell us what this is all about, Mr. O'Hare. I intend to. Then you had better do some fast talking to explain this masquerade. Masquerade? That's what I said. Your timing is a bit late. The real Chris Cool arrived here an hour ago to pick up that letter. Chris shot a startled glance at Geronimo. The Apache shrugged, his obsidian black eyes showing no expression. That's how the medicine ball bounces, Chunde. Looks as if somebody has pulled a fast one. Chris turned back to Nelson Hare. There's been a masquerade, all right, and you fell for it. What sort of identification did he have? The best. Not only a driver's license, but a U.S. passport. Hare frowned. I must admit, though, you do bear a fairly close resemblance. If you mean a resemblance to Chris Cool... Well, I should, since I am Christopher Cool. The agent produced his own driver's license and his university ID card. Call the dean of students at Kingston if you like, Chris added, and I'll talk to him. Better yet, is Dr. Mitsubi still on the staff here? Well, uh, yes. Hare now seemed less sure of himself. Would he be able to identify you? I'm quite sure he would, although it's been three years since we last met. But I often saw him when he was working with my father on those neutrino experiments. Dr. Masubi was sent for and soon arrived. He was a small, elderly Japanese-American. Doshiteru, Pineaparu! Chris greeted him. Mitsubi burst into a beaming, toothy smile. Chris, oh my boy, how are you? The two embraced and burst into a flood of Japanese mixed with American slang. Nelson Hare interrupted with a cough. Excuse me for asking, Dr. Mitsubi, but is this young man really the son of Dr. Jonathan Cool? Mitsubi stared at him. Are you serious? Of course he's the son of Dr. Cool. Who do you think we've been talking about just now? Hare reddened and explained. You see, it's very important to be sure of his identity. Well, you can take it from me. This lad is the McCoy, said Dr. Subi. I taught him most of his Japanese, and I'm quite sure nobody else would know that we used to greet each other by saying, How goes it, old pineapple? Well, Hare turned redder than ever and cleared his throat. I can see there certainly has been a mistake, and I do apologize. Never mind that, Chris said. 
Who else knew of that letter and your phone call to me? Nobody knew of both, except myself and the institute director, and of course my secretary, Miss Arkin. But I hope you're not suggesting that she... Hare's voice trailed off and he frowned worriedly. It was now five o'clock. Through the glass partition, Chris could see the brunette clearing her desk and preparing to leave. How long has she worked here? he asked. About six months, and she received security clearance. Hare rubbed his jaw thoughtfully. Now that I come to think of it, she's been acting rather oddly the past few weeks. Call her in, please, Chris said. Miss Arkin was hastily touching up her face. Hare stabbed the intercom button. Would you step in a moment, Miss Arkin, please? The secretary came into the office, clutching her open handbag. Her expression was slightly wary. Did you inform anyone about that letter for Christopher Cool or my phone conversation with him? Hare asked bluntly. Why, no, no, I... As she spoke, Miss Arkin was fumbling in her purse. Suddenly, she pulled out her lipstick, yanked off the cap, and hurled the case to the floor. Geronimo dived to intercept it, but it was too late. Boom! A sharp explosion shattered the glass partitions, and a dense cloud of pink smoke billowed in all directions. In the confusion, Miss Arkin dashed through the doorway to the outer office. Chris barely managed to grab her arm. Wham! Her handbag hit him hard in the face. But he hung on and yelled, Outside, everybody! Coughing and clutching handkerchiefs to their faces, the whole group poured out into the corridor, where Chris turned his kicking, clawing prisoner over to the security guards. Twenty minutes passed before calm was restored, and exhaust fans had cleared the office of smoke. Miss Arkin, stone-faced and handcuffed, was taken to the security department. Meanwhile, Chris and Geronimo, without bothering with formalities, were ransacking her desk for clues. The only promising lead seemed to be a telephone number jotted onto her desk calendar. Neither Hare nor the plant switchboard operator could identify it. Chris picked up a telephone and dialed Teens outside the line in New York. This is Chris Cool, he said tersely. Student at Kingston. I play on the Q varsity team. I have a phone number I'd like traced. Fast, please. Hare eyed him curiously. Who was that that you called? A friend at one of the federal agencies. In minutes, Teen reported back. That's a pay phone at Tad's Diner on Cliff Shore Road in Whitley, Maine. Whitley's a small village on the coast. Do you want exact directions? Don't bother. I can find it on a road map. By 6.30, the Jaguar was speeding north from Boston. How do you read the smoke, Chunde? Geronimo asked. Hare says the letter arrived in this morning's mail, Chris began thoughtfully. And the Arkansas tipped off somebody that it was here. Chris nodded. Her control probably told her to report back on what Hare did with it. In the meantime, Geronimo speculated, your helpful buddy, Paul Shanko, was supposed to take care of you so you'd have no chance to claim the letter and follow up their plans. Right. Then after Hare talked to me on the phone, the secretary called that main number again and told him I was coming this afternoon to pick it up. So the phony Chris Cool charged in to grab it before you got there. Exactly. Which means, 
Chris reasoned, that she may have called this number between 12 and 3.30. It was nearly 8 o'clock when they pulled up outside Tad's diner, a weather-beaten, clabbered building with an antique gasoline pump. The place was empty of customers as the boys went in and took stools at the counter. A skinny man in a stained apron, presumably Tad himself, eyed them without much interest. Get a lot of business here? Chris inquired. Some. I see you have a payphone. Yeah. Do people ever come in here to receive calls on that phone? Sometimes. How about this afternoon? Was anyone hanging around waiting for a call? Tad helped himself to a toothpick. What are you fellas? Interested? Think you're on order in anything? Two coffees. Chris put a five-dollar bill on the counter. And keep the change. Tad drew the coffee from a battered urn. Now that I recollect, there was a fella took a call in here this afternoon. Do you know who he was? Not by name, but I've seen him before. Him and another fella moved into an old shack down the coast a couple of weeks ago. How would we get there? Chris asked. Take the dirt road off near the village signpost. It'll lead you right past the place. Thanks. The boys gulped their coffee and left. The dirt road meandered along the brow of a hill overlooking the ocean. About two miles from the village, they glimpsed the lighted shack. It was perched on a wooded point and jutting into the sea. Chris parked off the road, and the two agents started toward the cabin. It was old and dilapidated. The front was screened by bushes, and one side was bordered by a dense tangle of trees and underbrush. The other side of the shack, edging the cliff, offered a clear approach to an open window. The boys moved cautiously, careful to avoid the scrape of gravel or the crackle of brush. Watch your step, Chunde, Geronimo whispered. Only a narrow shelf of level ground separated the wall of the cabin from the steep, rocky slope running down to the water's edge. Creeping on all fours, they picked their way along the brink, then rose to a half-crouch and peered through the window. Inside were two men, one swarthy and bald-headed. He was seated at a portable radio transceiver with a whip antenna, jotting down a transmission. Presently, he keyed a response, pulled off his headphones, and handed the message to his burly, sandy-haired partner. What's it mean, Mac? Give me a chance to decode first. The sandy-haired man frowned over the transmission as he wrote down the translation. Then he read it aloud. Cool, taking off 9.30 tonight. Report at once if shipment arrives. Chris tensed as he heard his own name spoken. An instant later came a faint rustling noise overhead. It was a bat fluttering down from its roost under the eaves. Chris flung up a hand to fend it off as the creature's wings brushed his face, but the movement threw him off balance. His stifled gasp turned into a yell as he toppled down the slope. Chapter 3 Red Flashes Chris landed hard on the stony hillside and rolled down in a noisy avalanche of gravel. Clawing wildly for a handhold, he managed to grab a clump of brush and brought himself to a wrenching halt. 
The fall had left him stunned, and every muscle in his body ached. He lay still for a moment, panting and trying to collect his wits. The sound of a shot snapped him back to alertness. The two men had come rushing out at the sound of his yell. Geronimo whirled to deal with them. As Mac, the sandy-haired man, rounded the corner of the shack, the Apache felled him with a punch. Mac toppled backwards against his swarthy companion, who fired blindly and missed. Chris saw the three figures above in the light from the cabin windows. Before the swarthy man could recover and take better aim, Chris whipped out his anesthetic pen. Zip! A dart crumpled the gunman. He would be unconscious for hours. Chris clambered upward. Geronimo gave him a hand as he reached the ledge bordering the shack. Nice going, White Eyes. I think you saved me a puncture, said the Indian. But next time, watch my step, eh? It might help. Lend a hand here. The boys lugged the men into the shack. The sandy-haired one was coming, too. Geronimo took out what looked like a small first-aid bandage and a cellophane wrapper and taped his wrists behind him. The bandage was actually an emergency handcuff. Who are you guys? Max snarled sullenly. I can't get away with this. Chris grinned. Call it a citizen's arrest. For what? Well, to start with, you can explain to the FCC why you're using a shortwave rig to receive coded messages. Huh, let's see. Add to that material witness and a conspiracy to commit fraud, maybe even robbing the United States mails. The sandy-haired man glared in helpless fury while Chris and Geronimo looked around the cabin. It was furnished with an old table and chairs, a cast-iron stove, an ice chest, a shelf of supplies, and three camp cots. Three cots, Geronimo muttered in Apache. Yep, that figures, Chris said back in the same language. The third one is probably for the phony who copped the letter. On a windowsill in the rear wall of the cabin was a small box-like electrical device. From this protruded a metal tube which curved to a point directly seaward through the open window. Chris unscrewed the cover. Inside was a transistor and a small slab of crystal. It's an ultrasonic oscillator, he murmured thoughtfully. What do you suppose it's for, Chunde? That's an interesting question which I am not prepared at the moment to answer. For that matter, what are these gadgets? Portable chicken coops? Chris pointed to the three wire mesh, cage-like contraptions about the size of orange crates. They were lying on the floor. Geronimo picked one up and examined it. At one end was a sort of sliding gate, which could be raised or lowered. He frowned and shrugged. Chris shot a glance at the two prisoners. Well, anyhow, keep an eye on these two characters, Jerry. I'll go call the boss man. He brushed off his rumpled clothes and left the shack. Over the Jaguar's radio telephone, he contacted Teed Control. Q listened grumpily to his report. If I might suggest, sir... Go on. With regard to the first sentence of that code message, Cool, taking off, 9.30 tonight, it could mean the imposters boarding a plane, possibly for London, since that's where the letter came from so it might be a good idea to have all the airports watched. Q snorted sarcastically. Keen thinking, Kingston won. 
The notion would have never occurred to me. Chris thought it wise to make no reply. Are you still there, Mr. Bond? Yes, sir. Well, stay there with your two prisoners. I'll send an aircraft to pick them up. Understood. Grinning, Chris made his way back toward the shack. Suddenly he froze to a standstill. A glimmer of red light had just flashed across the water, evidently from a ship standing somewhere offshore. Three more flashes followed, then darkness. After a pause, four red flashes were repeated. Chris broke into a run, calling, Hey, Jerry! The Indian appeared quickly in the doorway. What's wrong? Dig those blinker signals! The red light was flashing again. Geronimo scowled in puzzlement for a moment, then dashed into the cabin. Chris tagged after him. What are you going to do, Jerry? The Apache was switching on the transceiver. Monitor the short wave bands. They may be trying to raise the shack on the radio. That's a good idea. On a sudden hunch, Chris strode to the seaward window and flipped a toggle switch on the ultrasonic oscillator. Maybe the ship's waiting for this kind of a response, he conjectured. Through its tubular horn, the oscillator would beam out waves of ultrasound, too high-pitched for human hearing. But the red flashes had ceased. Several minutes went by with no further signals. Finally, Geronimo wrenched off the headset in disgust. We're wasting our time. That's no loss, Chris said. We may be stuck out here for an hour or so. Q sending a copter to pick up the... He broke off at an ominous buzzing noise. Chris gaped out the window. Something was zooming in on the cabin through the darkness. And there was more than one. But they weren't birds. What were they? An instant later came the answer. Whoosh! An enormous hornet, as big as a hawk, sailed in through the open window. And two more followed. Both the boys fell back as the huge creatures swooped and circled about the room. The hornets seemed to concentrate their dive-bombing runs at a point near the window. Aye! Geronimo's eyes were wide with disbelief. We're seeing them, so they must be real. Where did they come from? The ship. They must have homed in on the ultrasonic beam, Chris guessed. Suddenly he snapped his fingers. That's what the cages are for. You mean to snare the hornets? Yeah, these two jokers were expecting them. The hornets must be the shipment that the coded message referred to. The sandy-haired prisoner's furious scowl seemed to confirm Chris's guess. Geronimo eyed the monstrous insects warily, then plucked out his anesthetic pen. Zing! He nailed one of the swooping hornets with an anesthetic dart, and it plopped to the floor. Brilliant idea, Redskin! Chris followed suit and brought down another monster, while his buddy dropped the third. Never thought we'd be using these as ack-ack weapons. The boys lifted the hornets into the cages and fastened the sliding gates securely. It was past 9.30 when a sleek vertical takeoff and landing craft winged in and with a rotor finally hovered down on the roadway near the cabin. Chris guided it in by flashlight signals. He grinned in surprise as another agent that he knew stepped out of the cockpit clad in a flight suit. Bo! Hey, you cool one. 
How about the next dance? Grabbing Chris by the waist, the black man waltzed him about in the clearing. Beauregard Tatum, late of Mississippi and currently of Harvard, was one of Teen's most remarkable agents. Six foot four in height and 270 pounds of solid muscle, he did his best to disguise a brilliant mind with an air of flamboyant foolery. New gyrodyne, I see, Chris said, gesturing toward the aircraft. Yeah, man, latest addition to Q's air fleet. I just got checked out, and so they told me to come to get you two. What's cooking here? You wouldn't believe me if I told you. They walked toward the shack. Following Chris inside, Bo glanced at the prisoners and then said to Geronimo, Oh, there, colored boy. The copper-skinned Apache emitted one of his rare chuckles. Watch that kind of talk. Bo gaped in surprise at the caged hornets. That old man, what are you casping breeding up here? Live missiles? I knew the mosquitoes came big in the main woods, but nothing like this. Almost big enough to tackle you, baby, said Chris. But don't ask us how come. All we did was shoot them down. Bo nodded thoughtfully after hearing what had happened. Interesting. Very interesting indeed. Uh, you take the cages and the ultrasonic gear. I'll handle our guests. After hoisting the unconscious man over his shoulder, Bo collared the sandy-haired prisoner with one huge paw and jerked him to his feet. Come on, Buster. We're going bye-bye now. Bo added to Chris and Geronimo, Oh, by the way, I forgot to mention... You two are coming along with me. I don't know what's up, but the joint seems to be jumping. Great White Father wants you back at headquarters pronto. Your car will be picked up later. 